Well, my name is Kevin Barra, and I'm excited to be with you here this morning. Um, I have the great privilege of being over all of the youth ministry here at Grace Bible Church, and so that covers actually 5th through 12th, uh, if you were wondering, and, uh, and I also get to work with some great people like Jacob Smith, who you saw earlier, and, and uh, other staff teams. Um, I also have a wife. Her name is Hillary, and she's a, a veterinarian here in town, and I have um, two kids. Um, I have a uh, a daughter who's two years old, and I have a son who's now eight months, just starting to learn how to walk. And so let me just say this for real quick to all the dads out there. Happy Father's Day, and uh, it's fun to be one of the mix. So enjoy today by eating steak or something like that. Um, it's, it's your day. It's your day. You only get a couple of them. Hey, well, I get to also get to the great privilege of, uh, privilege of opening up our summer series. We're going to be talking about spiritual disciplines. And if you're like me, as soon as you hear that word, uh, discipline, you think to yourself, okay, I don't know if I want to do that. Uh, because naturally, most of us aren't really disciplined people. I know I'm not. I remember growing up through school, um, whenever a paper needed to get done, I was waiting for three o'clock that night before I would finally go, all right, let me get it done and, and start working on it. Um, but for, for many of us, we're, we're not necessarily real disciplined in our lives. It may, may show up in, in the way you do papers at school. It may show up in the way you eat food, the way you care for your physical body, the way you care for your house, um, the way you let your lawn grow in excessive ways and don't mow it till yesterday today? Me? Um, so we, we may find ourselves to not be as disciplined as we w- would want to be. But interestingly, I, I read two articles um, this week talking about how discipline, that the reality is discipline is a crucial piece that we need to succeed in any endeavor. I read two articles, one from NPR and the other from the New York Times, um, trying to figure out how do we educate our students in such a way that they will continue to be successful um, as countries like China and, and uh, India are, are making uh, headwind in their, their education and, and the scores in math and sciences. Um, researchers are trying to figure out, okay, how is it that we can make our students more successful in these academic endeavors? And both of these uh, articles quoted from a study published in the Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences. I'm sure you already read it, but uh, let me just repeat it for you. It says this, The children who struggled with self-control as preschoolers were three times as likely to have problems as young adults. They were more prone to have a criminal record and more likely to be poor or have financial problems. And they were more likely to be single parents. Interesting. And so they try to filter out uh, uh, socioeconomic and um, just IQ. Are those factors that play into whether or not someone will be successful in life? And they found this. The Moffat study found that self-control predicts adult success even after the participants were differentiated based on socioeconomic status and IQ. See, self-control was the predictor, the single key piece to determine whether or not a student was going to be successful academically. And the truth is, we also need discipline athletically. Um, Jesse Owens, former uh, Olympian long ago, said this. He says, we all have dreams. In order to make dreams come into reality, it takes an awful lot of determination, dedication, self-discipline, and effort. J. Oswald Sanders, a writer of a book called Spiritual Disciplines, he says this. Without this essential quality of discipline, all other talents remain as dwarfs. They never fully develop. And the last quote that I like, this is just funny and I thought it was awesome. This is by H. Jackson Brown. He says this, talent without discipline is like an octopus on roller skates. There's plenty of movement, but you never know if it's going forward, backward, sideways, 
whatever it is. Uh, my daughter has a new favorite song, um, and it's called Slippery Fish. You may be familiar with it. I wasn't. Uh, but there's a moment when you go slippery fish, and he's sliding through the water, and there comes uh, another great moment where an octopus comes and eats the fish, and he kind of eats animals along the way. Eats. So in her moment in that, that song is that there's hand motions to every good children's song. And so she says, octopus, octopus, sliding through the water. And she like flings her arms around. And it's a big mess. And so we film that and we put it on Facebook and, because it's, it's hilarious to watch. And the reality is that's the picture. If you have talents, but they are not tempered with discipline, self-control, they will not fully develop. You may be working in a lot of different directions, but you look like an octopus on roller skates. You're not really going forward. And so the, the question is, we, or the reality is, we all need discipline in our life. The question is, what is spiritual disciplines? What are spiritual disciplines? Well, I, I would answer that question this way to ask this question. What is the goal of the Christian life? Like, what does success look like? If someone was to ask you, what is the goal of the Christian life? What are you trying to achieve? How would you answer that question? Well, Dallas Willard, in a definition of spiritual discipline, says this. The disciplines are activities of the mind and body purposefully undertaken to bring our personality and total being into effective cooperation with the divine order. They enable us more and more to live in a power that is beyond ourselves, deriving from the spiritual realm and yielding ourselves to God. But the reality is, okay, okay, we'll make that a little easier to understand, easier to swallow. What is the goal of the Christian life? What is success? And I would say it's probably, it's, it could be narrowed down to these three ideas. First goal is intimacy with God. The first and greatest commandment is to this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The first and greatest commandment is to love God. The second piece is this, Christ-like character For within you and within me to develop the character of Christ, to love better, to serve him more in greater dedication. And the third step is this, that we would truly follow God and be faithful to the call that he has on my life and your life. What I like about these ideas is that it doesn't have anything to do with effectiveness. It doesn't matter how big your ministry is, how successful your corporation is. It means this, are you growing in your relationship and devotion to God? And if the answer to that is yes, you are barreling down the road towards success in the spiritual life. But the reality is spiritual disciplines, the pathway to get there is through the process of developing spiritual disciplines in your life. And I would say this, spiritual disciplines aren't a guarantee that you will be spiritual superstar. Like you can't put a couple of these in your life and ensure in a couple weeks, couple months, like you will have, have arrived um, in the same way, I don't know if you follow NBA basketball, um, LeBron James a couple of years ago transferred down to Miami with hopes of NBA glory, right? Like his goal is to transfer to the um, Miami Heat and surround himself with some different players with some different abilities with the hopes that, that they would be successful, that they would get an NBA championship. But it's not a guarantee, in a similar way, if you don't like that one, uh, if, you, if you're a planter, like you have a little garden and you like to grow those little things, you can plant the seed, you can tend the garden, um, you can put fertilizer and water there together and mix it in the right amounts, but it won't guarantee that it will grow and flourish. If you want evidence, just come to my yard L- later on today, I'll give you directions. Like it doesn't guarantee that those flowers are actually going to look good. In a similar way, if you want to develop intimacy within your marriage, you can go to your wife You can look at her longingly in the face. 
you can tell her I love you, you know? And you can, um, you can write her poetry and you can bring her to dinner and you can, you can do all the little pieces that demonstrate love and facilitate intimacy, but it doesn't guarantee that you're going to get there. What spiritual disciplines are, are creating an environment for life to thrive. It's creating a moment for your heart to grow in relationship with God and for effectiveness in the life that you live. But it's only creating the circumstances for the spirit of God to work within you. But the truth is this, there's no success in any endeavor in life without discipline. And the same is true in your spiritual life. And this morning, we're gonna focus on one discipline in particular. And it's the discipline of this, worship. Which may sound funny to you because you may think to yourself, okay, why is worship a discipline? And, and more importantly, how are you even going to talk about that? Uh, are you going to tell us like when to raise our hands, what songs to sing, uh, how to write stuff in our journals? Like, like what, what, what does worship even mean? How to sit in pews? Like, I don't, I don't even understand. But if, when you think about worship, I, I want you to think about it this way. Not in terms of, of a moment or an event, but a heart attitude towards God. Romans chapter one says, says this, the, the, this truth. The reality is we are all worshipers. The real question is, what are you worshiping? In Romans chapter one, Paul is laying out, as y'all covered forever ago, uh, what it looks like when we engage God. And the problem is when we choose to not engage with God and we choose to engage with something else, the opposite of Christianity isn't atheism, it's idolatry. Paul says this in Romans 1, 25. He says this, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. See, if God isn't going to hold that position of, of the central focus of your life, something else will. Tim Keller in a great book called Counterfeit God says this, Our, The human heart is an idol factory. If you take out one idol, something else will come flooding in to take its place. So what is worship? How would we define it? Romans 12 or 1136 through 12, one defines it really well. If you have a Bible, you flip over there. We're going to be in John chapter four, but Romans 12 says this for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Chapter 12, verse one. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy to God, acceptable. This is your spiritual service of worship. There's two ideas in there that define worship for us, and it's this, glory and sacrifice. Whatever holds that position of of glory or, or what you're willing to sacrifice for, that is truly your object of worship. And I want to talk about worship in in two different ways this morning. I want to look at a story of where worship plays out. And here's how real worship comes. It comes when we identify what it is we are really worshiping in our lives. And it comes also when we are redirected to the right object of worship. And to do that, I'm going to look at a story of of Jesus and his interaction with a woman. Um, You're probably familiar with the story. It occurs in John chapter 4, and there's a woman who arrives at a well, and Jesus does something amazing. He points out what she is truly worshiping and brings her along this path to show her where the right object of worship is. And I'm going to walk you through that story. So if you have your Bible, chapter 4 of John, starting in verse 7, 
It says, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples have gone away into the city to buy some food. And therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become a a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman says, I want some of that water. That's ridiculous. See, what's interesting in this first moment is that Jesus points out in this whole section three longings that we have. Three, Three pieces that show us what we're actually worshiping. And the three pieces are this, that we have physical thirsts, we have emotional thirsts, and we have spiritual thirsts. We have physical thirsts. We have have physical needs that need to be met. We also have emotional thirsts. In particular, the desire for intimacy and impact, to be known and and to be loved. We also have this desire for, we have spiritual needs. Another way to describe that is desire for transcendence, to know that we are living for something greater than ourselves, And in this moment, Jesus kind of points out each one of these pieces in her life. And the first one he addresses is her physical need. See, the the, the reason she came to this well was to draw water. And culturally, what would happen is there would be a single well in the middle of town, and everyone kind of went to that area to get water. But what's interesting about this moment is that it says in the verse above, in verse 6, that I didn't read, that it's about the sixth hour when this has taken place. So that means it's, it's about 12 noon. And that doesn't mean anything to you, but, it, but culturally, women always traveled in packs, um, as they still do today, particularly junior high girls. Um, and they used to always go either in the morning or the evening as a group. And they went as a group to, part of it was just protection, but it was social, and it was, it was a time to, to go there together. But this woman travels by herself at noon, which was during the heat of the day. And it's in this moment, this kind of secluded moment, when this woman and we'll see her background here in a little bit, she's going by herself to get this water. See, there's a physical need present. And Jesus points out that, hey, physical needs should be a window into the deeper needs that every one of us have. And so the physical need is, is yeah, I, I need something to drink. I need water. But, but the, it should be pointing us toward a deeper need that we have in each one of us. And here's the truth. Physical needs, emotional needs, spiritual needs. What idolatry is, is satisfying those very real longings in an illegitimate way. And so what happens to this woman is that she has put a lot of value on this well. Jesus says to her, he says, hey, you know, can you give me some water? And, he, and she's like, well, you don't, why are you even talking to me? And he says, he says look, if you, would have, if you know who you were talking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. And immediately she says, okay, Jesus, who do you think you are? Jacob dug this well. His family drank from this well. Who do you think you are, Jesus? There's a significance in what this water provides that I don't think you're aware of, Jesus. Um, Let me educate you about this well. It's very important. Um, 
And the reality is physical needs can bring on spiritual implications. And what, what happens is this physical need that she has brings its meeting with spiritual exercises. So she goes at this time, she, she drew it in her way, and, and she thought, this is the well that will supply my life. And I'm going to take a little tangent away from that, but just to say that, that sometimes meeting our own physical needs can become a spiritual exercise. I had friends that, that started working at coffee shops, right? And uh, they were normal people before they entered the coffee shop world. Um, but they entered in and suddenly they're telling me about the roasting of beans and how long you have them in a bag and, and when you grind a bean, how long you can wait until it's proper to take in the bean, you know? And, and so they're telling me all of these things surrounding it. And suddenly they're also telling me they're differentiating. They're like, well, they don't roast theirs right. and We roast ours right. And they burn them. And, and, so, and so suddenly like the simple physical need of coffee, which is a legitimate physical need, it, it takes on these spiritual implications. I have a friend of mine that's a, a sommelier. Um, I don't know if you know what that is. His job is to, to position himself at fine dining restaurants. And as people eat their $90 steak and fish, um, he kind of saddles up beside them and, and educates them on the proper wine that will bring out the right flavors of that steak or the right flavors of that fish. And so his responsibility is to, is to ensure that this kind of physical moment becomes all that it could be, right? It's so funny to me. Um, the reality is that these physical needs, some, for some reason, they start taking on these, these spiritual implications. It's not even about the food anymore. It's about, it's about this experience that can be provided. Going on, uh, it, it was it's pretty funny to, to, to watch this play out. Um, see, she was seeing this, this water, this physical substance, as something bigger than it actually was and bigger than Jesus. This physical need took on spiritual implications. And for you, it may not be drink, right? It may not be like the, the food that you intake. Um, but the reality is we all have physical needs that we elevate to be something bigger than they are. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18 through 19. He says this, For many walk of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is, this is the key, their appetite whose glory is their shame, and who set their minds on earthly things. This physical need, some, for some reason, brings in spiritual implications. So how do we know it's an idol? Like, like, what is it doing for us? It's what we're looking for to give us our little piece of heaven, of rescue. And so you may be watching HGTV, completely innocent, great little shows, whatever, right? And suddenly it becomes your moment to make your little paradise. You're like, I want that countertop and that bathroom and that sofa. And, and all of a sudden you go to Lowe's and Lowe's becomes a worship experience, right? Because I want to get this item and I'm going to pay this money to get this thing. Because whatever you glory in, whatever you sacrifice to, that is your object of worship. But it's not just physical needs. Um, it could also be in emotional needs, it goes on in the passage where Jesus points out the very real emotional need that she needed met. After this first interaction about the water, he goes on in verse 16 and he says, go and call your husband to come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you've answered correctly, I have no husband. For you had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. 
the woman said, I perceive that you're a prophet. Um, you kind of know, know some stuff. You see, she had very real emotional needs. And our emotional needs play out in, I would say, two different ways. The desire for intimacy and impact. We all have deep emotional longings that need to be met. And, and they play out really in these two ways, intimacy and impact. And movies thrive on this idea, right? So if you're going to pick a movie to go to, um, you're thinking, sifting through, what are you going to watch tonight? Is it going to be a romance or is it going to be a violence, right? Um, is there going to be a love story or are there going to be blowing up stuff? Like, like what is it that's going to fill this movie, right? And the great movies, they combine both of them. So my wife and I are watching Night and Day. I'm not saying it's a great movie, but we were watching Night and Day the other day. It's a, uh, it's a movie with Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz. And you see this love story beginning. And uh, how does a love story grow if you're a writer in Hollywood? You need to blow up stuff, right? And so he's a CIA operative and he starts blowing up cars and shooting people because that's how love grows. You see the same thing in Mr. and Mrs. Smith, right? They're both kind of quiet CIA operatives and marriage is in trouble. How do you unite these people? Uh, you blow up stuff. You shoot rocket launchers. And, and, and suddenly, like, the desire for intimacy is met as you see impact playing out. You see, the truth is we all have deep emotional needs that all, we all need met. And the sad piece is that we often go to illegitimate places to meet him. He says to this woman, yeah, you, you have this emotional need. Tell me about your husband. I don't have one. He's like, right. The five past men you've been with never filled your needs. And the one you're with now, I guess what? It's going to be the same story. Tim Keller has, a, has a, in his book called Counterfeit Gods, he quotes a writer, a writer named Ernest Becker. He won the Pulitzer Prize for a, for a book that he wrote. And the, the author was basically trying to answer this question. If we remove God out of the center place of worship, what is it that will replace that deep longing? And one of his conclusions was, was considered apocalyptic romance. And he says this, he says in his book, Denial of Death, he explained the various ways secular people have dealt with the loss of the belief of God. And he goes on to say this, he still needed to feel heroic, to know that his life mattered in the scheme of things. If he no longer had God, what was going to do this? One of the first ways that occurred to him, as Otto Rank saw, was the romantic solution. The love partner becomes the divine ideal within which to fulfill one's life. All spiritual, moral needs now became the focus on one individual. In one word, the love object is God. What is it that we want from this individual when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? We want redemption. Nothing less. Ben Stewart, as he was um, talking about these ideas um, a couple of years ago, goes on to illustrate it in this way. He says, he points us all to Disney, which is a great place to learn stuff. And he says, he says think about Disney princesses. And I was like, uh, I'm there, I've got a daughter, so yes. Um, he says, think about Rapunzel. Think about Cinderella. Think about Snow White. What are all of those stories telling you? Well, Snow White says, I've got all these little guys and they're great, but I need a big dude to come save me, right? What's Cinderella about? I need a man to come get me. And guys, we have it too. Princess and the Frog, Beauty and the Beast, what are these stories telling you? You are ugly. <laughs> Until a beautiful woman comes into your life and tells you you're okay. You see, we elevate this love 
to epic proportions. And this person becomes the focal point. You meet my needs. You, you fulfill all that I'm lacking. You, you complete me, right? That's the language that we get from our culture. But the sad truth is they never do. But it may not be in the intimacy realm. It may be in the impact. Madonna said this. If you're not into cuddling, uh, you may be into conquering. So Madonna is your, your person, person to go to for this. She says this. I have an iron will. And all my will has been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself in a special human being that I have to get to another stage and think that I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible feeling of fear and of being mediocre. That's why it's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended. It probably never will. You see, the problem that replacing God with something else is that these idols never produce what they promise. They produce fame and glory. And what you see in Madonna's quote is that, is that she's on a treadmill. Like she's constantly trying to get there. And once she's arrived in a moment, a couple months pass, a couple years pass, and suddenly you're mediocre and uninteresting and you've got to chase that wheel again so that someone will tell you you're valuable. Someone will tell you you're interesting. Someone will tell you that you are important. That is what all counterfeit gods do. And if we try to satiate our physical needs on food or emotional needs on an individual or a pursuit, what will happen is it will always leave you dry. So how do you figure out what, what it is that is your, your object of worship? Well, I'd ask you this question. What consumes your mind, your moments, and your money? What do you, what do you think about? Because what you think about is what you care about, and what you care about is what you'll chase. What do you spend money on? Like, what's easy? Like, I'm going to throw out cash on that. I mean, what, what does your money easily go to? And what fills your time? What consumes the moments of your day? That is a window into what it is that you're actually worshiping. Because worship is this, glory and sacrifice. So whatever you think will, will bring you emotional satisfaction, physical satisfaction, you will make sacrifices too. And the reason this is a real problem is because when we try to meet these deep emotional needs, these deep physical needs, really this need for transcendence, when we try to meet them in, in these other ways, the worship of God and the pursuit of God takes a back seat. And so she tries to, tries to change the subject, right? So, so Jesus kind of probes into her heart, kind of probes into like some things that she's dealing with. And she says, I see that you're a prophet. Okay, let's get off of me and let's talk about you. And, and it says, she goes on to say, um, Let's talk about worship. Um, your Jews say to worship at this hill um, or in Jerusalem, and we worship at this hill in Samaria. So who's right? And I love what Jesus does in this moment. He redirects her worship, and he says, look, the root of these issues is ultimately worship, and so I'm happy we got there. You see, when, when, when we satiate our spiritual needs on something else, the problem is we punt God. And he says, yeah, let's bring it back to what it really, what the real focus is. And he says this, I want to tell you, first of all, what worship is not. And in verse 21, he says, worship is not. He says, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither this, on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He says, worship is, is not a place. 
It's a person. He's like, you've got to know the Father. And, and it's not about location. And for us, worship isn't about a place. It doesn't just mean that you come to Grace Bible Church or you go to a, another church. It's not this event on a Sunday morning where worship is limited to. It's not primarily a place. It's a person. It's the Father God. And secondly, he says this, worship is, is not rooted in feeling, but it's rooted in fact. Read me in verse 22 and 23. He says this, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such the Father seeks to be his worshipers. What he says is, look, it's not about feelings and emotion. It's about knowing the truth of who God is. And so what he says is, uh, what you need to do is get a banjo and start playing some stuff. Or what you need is an acoustic guitar, a great worship CD, and, and kind of create that kind of little moment where you like to sing songs. Like, like that's not the, the true piece that brings you to what worship really is. Worship is rooted in information. It's facts. It's data. It's things you know. Because emotions are tied to information. And if you get the information right, your emotions will follow. Let me give you a simple example. If your kid comes to you and, you, and says to you, I got a 55 on that test. Immediately, as a parent, you might go, what? What did you study? What'd you, you may freak out, right? But when the, your son or daughter follows up with, um, out of 55, suddenly your emotions change, right? Because information fuels your emotions, And so what Jesus is saying is, look, true worship isn't feeling, it's information that fuels this. And the last piece, he says this, true worship is not found in you, it's found in him. She goes on to respond and and says, says, I know that when the the Messiah comes, um, he will declare to us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you in him. So when when you come to me, that's when you know where true worship is found. It's found in Christ alone. See, but then he also goes on to say, okay, if if this is what worship is not, what is true worship? I'll say this, it's rooted in revelation. You see, it begins with knowing truths. So you've got to know the right information and the pieces you've got to know, and as you see in the story is this, that you've got to know that you are a sinner separate from God, that we all worship something other than God. Martin Luther said it this way, if we get the first commandment right, we'll follow the rest of the 10. If we worship God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we will love our neighbor as ourselves. We will live as we should. The problem is we get this first one wrong. And, and Jesus says, look, first of all, you've got to know who you really are in the sight of God. The second re- revelation is this, who the son of man is. He says, worshipers that know this, they're going to be worshiping in spirit and in truth. And what happens when you know the person of Jesus, here's the information you've got to know. You've got to know that he was the son of God. He lived the perfect life. He died the death you deserve to die. And he rose in victory over Satan, sin, and death. And when you know him, something remarkable happens. He puts his spirit within you that brings you life so that you might know him and worship him in a truly spiritual way. And it's in truth. The second thing that he says is that it's based in truth, information. As you read the Psalms, if if you were to read Psalm 52 or, or several of them, what they always do is they point Israel back to what God has done. They point them to facts. 
They don't point them to emotional experiences. They're not like, remember when we were walking and it was awesome? Like God was there. No. They said, remember when you were enslaved in Egypt and you were running your own way and God rescued you? Focus on that, God. Remember when, when your enemies were all around you and God saved you out of that moment. Remember that, God. So how do we facilitate a heart that truly worships? You read the scriptures. You see what God has done in the past for his people and for you. And then you reflect on your life. What has God done within your life? And this is where the, uh, the principle or the spiritual discipline of worship really crosses over with the other disciplines. To really worship means that, that we know the truths of God. That means we read the words of God. That means we sit and we meditate on the words of God. We think about them. But it also means a second piece is that we, resp- our third piece, and that's this, that we respond in praise. And the truth is all worship always responds in praise. I told you I had an eight-month-old son, and he is just now beginning to walk. And, uh, and how do you respond to that moment? If you've got kids and you're beginning to walk, or if you don't have kids, but you're thinking about what it might look like when they walk, okay, just go with me on this. What do we do? Well, we see him pull up on the side of the couch, right? Or pull up in the crib, or, or pull up on the little ottoman, right? And he starts standing there on his wobbly legs. What do we do? We praise, right? We're like, woo! And then we video it, and we put it on Facebook, and we tell everyone, right? Like, there's a process to praise, right? Like we celebrate the moment and then we go tell everyone what just happened. And see, that's what this woman did. It says that she dropped her water pot. She went to her town and she said, you've got to, everyone's got to know what this guy did. Real praise always responds in, in praise worship of the moment and telling someone else about it. C.S. Lewis, in a, in a book that he wrote called Reflections on the Psalms, was kind of challenged by this because often in the Psalms it says, praise God, and, and it's your responsibility to offer praise to God. And he says, okay, does it sound like God's like a little bit self-absorbed? Like, like he's asking for praise, asking that we praise him? I mean, it sounds a little self-serving, doesn't it? But then he thought about it. He says, I, I missed a crucial element of what praise is. Praise Praise isn't just something that we do as an obligation. It's the culmination of the experience. So this next year, you're going to go to A&M football games, right? And you have great aspirations, great hopes that this team is going to do well. And what's going to happen, I'm going to speak prophetically for a moment. Um, The quarterback is going to throw a pass and the receiver is going to be running and he's going to jump and he's going to catch it and he's going to pull it in and he's going to run. And it's going to be a beautiful thing. And you're going to stand to your feet, right? In elation. You're going, that's right, baby. That's right. That's right. And as he goes further, you're going to be yelling louder. Go, go, go. And, and, and suddenly like, like this, you have to respond in praise of the moment. And if you've got friends that go to other schools, particularly UT or whatever, you're going to then respond. See why we went to the SEC? See, we're better now. And, and suddenly you're going to jive them because real praise is an expression of praise, a celebration of the moment, and then you go tell someone else. Real worship has these two pieces, and the last piece is this, the fourth is this, this cycle repeats itself. And so what is real worship? If, if we're, what, how do we practice the spiritual discipline of worship? Can I give you a few thoughts? It means this, we put ourselves in an environment where we allow God to, to sift our hearts to show us what's really there. Like we take the time to say, Lord, I know I'm imperfect. Tell me about me. And then we see what God is saying. That means we, we read his word. We, we think about him. We, we pray to him. And you let him begin to change your heart and mind. 
And that means that we respond and praise back to him. And for some of you, that's going to be in song. And so you're going to throw on your iPod some loud praise music and you're going to be driving down the road and you're going to scream it out in your car and it's going to be awesome. For others of you, you that's not you. And so you're, you're going to sing quietly to yourself like, ah, oh, you're great, God, you know, in whatever way. But, but you sing, you praise. But it also means this, that you're probably going to need to start journaling if you've never practiced this. And you're going to write down, thank you, Lord, for the things that you have done within me. Let this be a reminder. Oftentimes I'll go back to old journals and I'll... I'll help me in my moments because I go, where was God's faithfulness? And I'll revisit it. And that means we tell someone else about it. See, we tell someone else about the great things God has done in us. And we do that in two ways. We gather in communities like this because we need people around us to encourage us to see that we've got other people that are going the same direction that we are. Why is it that every individual sport still trains in groups and teams? Why is it that boxers have a team of boxers they train with? Because we need community to help us to grow in our worship. So we have these moments in our life. But we also have um, solitary moments when we go and we, we meet with God by ourselves. And it means this, we repeat this cycle. We see who we are, we respond appropriately, and we sing and praise what God is doing in us and through us. And by God's grace, we will be ones that are truly great worshipers, that worship in spirit and truth. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. And I thank you, Lord, that, that your word reveals um, where we mess up. But more importantly, your word reveals who you're creating us to be. And so, Lord, I pray that you would, you would reveal to us what are, the, what are the things that we're worshiping? What are the idols that we're chasing? And, Father, that you would help us by the power of your Spirit to root them out. And, God, we pray that you would redirect us. You would change our hearts and our minds and our actions to really live a life that honors you. And, Lord, I pray all of this for your glory and our good. To your name we pray. Amen. You have a great morning.